So this evening we'll continue with treasures from the Anguttara Nikaya, and I'll I have a selection of suttas from the Book of Sevens. And once I read those, we'll continue with Lumpur Opat's teachings. And this isn't following necessarily any any single theme, but um, but it is uh, yeah some some very interesting suttas. And I'm going to jump back and forth a little bit. So this is Nikaya, Book of the Sevens, Sutta, Sutta 61, Dozing. Thus have I heard, on one occasion, the Blessed One was dwelling among the Bhagas at Sumaragira in the deer park at the Besakala Grove. Now on that occasion, the Venerable Mahamogalana was sitting and dozing at Kalawalamutagama among the Magadans. This is when he was striving for arhantship. With the divine eye, which is purified and surpasses the human, the Blessed One saw the Venerable Mahamogalana sitting and dozing. Then, just as a strong man might extend his drawn-in arm or draw in his extended arm, the Blessed One disappeared from the deer park at Besa Kala Grove and reappeared before the Venerable Mahamogalana. The Blessed One sat down on the seat that was prepared for him and said, are you dozing, Mogalana? Are you dozing, Mogalana? Yes, Bhante. Therefore, Mogalana, you should not attend to or cultivate the objects that you were attending to when you became drowsy. By such means, it is possible that your drowsiness will be abandoned. But if you cannot abandon your drowsiness in such a way, you should ponder, examine, and mentally inspect the Dhamma as you have heard it and learned it, by such means, it is possible that your drowsiness will be abandoned. But if you cannot abandon your drowsiness in such a way, you should recite in detail the Dhamma as you have heard it and learned it. By such means, it is possible that your drowsiness will be abandoned. But if you cannot abandon your drowsiness in such a way, you should pull both ears and rub your limbs with your hands. By such means, it is possible your drowsiness will be abandoned. But if you cannot abandon your drowsiness in such a way, you should get up from your seat, rub your eyes with water, survey all the quarters, and look up at the constellations and stars. By such means, it is possible that your drowsiness will be abandoned. But if you cannot abandon your drowsiness in such a way, you should attend to the perception of light. You should undertake the perception of day thus, as by day, so at night, as at night, so by day. Thus, with a mind that is open and uncovered, you should develop a mind imbued with luminosity. By such means, it is possible that your drowsiness will be abandoned. But if you cannot abandon your drowsiness in such a way, you should undertake the exercise of walking back and forth, perceiving what is behind you and what is in front, with your sense faculties drawn in and your mind collected. By such a means, it is possible that your drowsiness will be abandoned. But if you cannot abandon your drowsiness in such a way, you should lie down on the right side in the lion's posture, with one foot overlapping the other, mindful and clearly comprehending, after noting in your mind the idea of rising. When you awaken, you should get up quickly, thinking, I will not be intent on the pleasure of rest, the pleasure of sloth, the pleasure of sleep. It is in this way, Mogalana, that you should train yourself. And uh, so there's... These are so just some very practical advice for overcoming drowsiness, rubbing your limbs, looking up at the stars, perception of light, and so on. Therefore, Mogalana, you should train yourself thus. 
We will not approach families for alms with, head, with a head swollen with pride. It is in this way, Mogalana, that you should train yourself. It may be, Mogalana, that a bhikkhu approaches families with a head swollen with pride. Now there are chores to be done in the families, and for this reason, when a bhikkhu turns up, people may not pay attention to him. In such a case, the bhikkhu might think, Who has turned this family against me? It seems these people have now become indifferent toward me. In this way, through lack of gain, one feels humiliated. When feeling humiliated, one becomes restless. When one is restless, one loses one's restraint. The mind of one without restraint is far from concentration. Therefore, Mogalana, you should train yourself thus. We will not engage in contentious talk. It is in such a way you should train yourself. When there is contentious talk, an excess of words can be expected. When there is an excess of words, one becomes restless. When one is restless, one loses one's restraint. The mind of one without restraint is far from concentration. Mogalana, I do not praise bonding with everyone whatsoever, nor do I praise bonding with no one at all. I do not praise bonding with householders and monastics, but I, too pray, but I do praise bonding with quiet and noiseless lodgings far from the flurry of people, remote from human habitation and suitable for seclusion. When this was said, the Venerable Mahamogalana said to the Blessed One, Briefly, Bhante, how is a bhikkhu liberated in the extinction of craving, best among devas and humans, one who has reached the ultimate conclusion, won ultimate security from bondage, lived the ultimate spiritual life, and gained the ultimate consummation. Here, Mogalana, a bhikkhu has heard, nothing is worth holding to. When a bhikkhu has heard, nothing is worth holding to, he directly knows all things. Having directly known all things, he fully understands all things. Having fully understood all things, whatever feeling he feels, whether pleasant, painful, or neither painful nor pleasant, he dwells contemplating impermanence in those feelings, contemplating fading away in those feelings, contemplating cessation in those feelings, contemplating relinquishment in those feelings. As he dwells contemplating impermanence, fading away, cessation, and relinquishment in those feelings, he does not cling to anything in the world. Not clinging, he is not agitated. Being unagitated, he personally attains Nibbana. He understands. Destroyed is birth. The spiritual life has been lived. What had to be done has been done. There is no more coming back into any state of being. Briefly, Mogalana, it is in this way that a bhikkhu is best among devas and humans, one who has reached the ultimate conclusion, one ultimate security from bondage, lived the ultimate spiritual life, and gained the ultimate consummation. The sutta that he goes from talking about drowsiness in order to talking about training his character while going for alms. It's uh, quite uh, interesting. And the next sutta, Sutta 62, do not be afraid of merit. Bhikkhus, do not be afraid of merit. This is a designation for happiness, that is, merit, punya. I recall that for a long time I experienced the desirable, lovely, agreeable result of merit that had been made over a long time. For seven years I developed a mind of loving kindness. As a consequence, 
For seven aeons of world dissolution and evolution, I did not come back to this world. When the world was dissolving, I fared on to the realm of streaming radiance. When the world was evolving, I was reborn in an empty mansion of Brahma. There I was Brahma, the great Brahma, the vanquisher, the unvanquished, the universal seer, the wielder of mastery. I was Saka, ruler of the devas, 36 times. Many hundreds of times I was a wheel-turning monarch, a righteous king who ruled by the Dhamma, a conqueror whose rule extended to the four boundaries, one who had attained stability in his country, who possessed the seven gems. I had these seven gems, that is, the wheel gem, the elephant gem, the horse gem, the jewel gem, the woman gem, the treasurer gem, and the advisor gem as the seventh. I had over a thousand sons who were heroes, vigorous, able to crush the armies of their enemies. I reigned after conquering this earth as far as its ocean boundaries, not by force and weapons, but by the Dhamma. And then it goes into verses. If one seeks happiness, look to the result of merit, the result of wholesome deeds. For seven years I developed a loving mind, O bhikkhus, and for seven aeons of dissolution and evolution I did not come back again to this world. When the world was dissolving, I fared on to the realm of streaming radiance. When the world was evolving, I fared on to an empty Brahma mansion. Seven times I was great Brahma, the wielder of mastery. Thirty-six times I was ruler of the devas, exercising rulership over the devas. I was a wheel-turning monarch, the lord of Jambudipa, a head-anointed Katya, the sovereign among human beings. Without force, without weapons, I conquered this earth. I ruled it by righteousness, without violence, by Dhamma, exercising rulership by Dhamma over this sphere of the earth. I was born into a rich family with abundant wealth and property, a family endowed with all sense pleasures and possessing the seven gems. This is well taught by the Buddhas, the benefactors of the world. This is the cause of greatness by which one is called a lord of the earth. I was a king bright with splendor, one with abundant wealth and commodities. I was a lord of Jambodipa, powerful and glorious, who, even though of a low birth, would not place trust on hearing this. Therefore, one desiring the good, aspiring for greatness, should deeply revere the good Dhamma, recollecting the Buddha's teaching. Then there's, uh, I'll back up to Sutta 58. And this is a sutta called No Need to Hide. Because there are these four things that the Tathagata does not need to hide, and three things about which he is irreproachable. What are the four things that the Tathagata does not need to hide? Bhikkhus, the Tathagata is one whose bodily behavior is purified. There is no bodily misconduct on the part of the Tathagata that he might need to hide, thinking, let others not find this out about me. The Tathagata is one whose verbal behavior is purified. There is no verbal misconduct on the part of the Tathagata that he might need to hide, thinking, let others not find this out about me. The Tathagata is one whose mental behavior is purified. There is no mental misconduct on the part of the Tathagata that he might need to hide, thinking, let others not find this out about me. The Tathagata is one whose livelihood is purified. There is no wrong livelihood on the part of the Tathagata that he might need to hide, thinking, 
Let others not find this out about me. These are the four things that the Tathagata does not need to hide. And what are the three things about which he is irreproachable? The Tathagata Bhikkhus is one whose Dhamma is well expounded. In regard to this, I do not see any ground on the basis of which an ascetic, Brahmin, Deva, Mara, Brahma, or anyone in the world could reasonably reprove me. For such and such reasons, your Dhamma is not well expounded. Except I do not see any such ground, I dwell secure, fearless, and self-confident. I have well proclaimed to my disciples the practice leading to Nibbana in such a way that, practicing in accordance with it and reaching the destruction of the taints, they realize for themselves with direct knowledge in this very life the taintless liberation of mind, liberation by wisdom, and having entered upon it, dwell in it. In regard to this, I do not see any ground on the basis of which an ascetic, Brahmin, Deva, Mara, Brahma, or anyone in the world could reasonably reprove me. For such and such reasons, you have not well proclaimed to your disciples the practice leading to Nibbana in such a way that, practicing in accordance with it and reaching the destruction of the taints, they realize for themselves with direct knowledge in this very life the taintless liberation of mind, liberation by wisdom, and having entered upon it, dwell in it. Since I do not see any such ground, I dwell secure, fearless, and self-confident. My assembly, bhikkhus, consists of many hundreds of disciples who, with the destruction of the taints, have realized for themselves with direct knowledge in this very life the taintless liberation of mind, liberation by wisdom, and having entered upon it, dwell in it. In regard to this, I do not see any ground on the basis of which an ascetic, Brahmin, Deva, Mara, Brahma, or anyone in the world could reasonably reprove me. For such and such reasons, it is not the case that your assembly consists of many hundreds of disciples who have destroyed the taints and realized for themselves with direct knowledge in this very life the taintless liberation of mind, liberation by wisdom, and having entered upon it, dwell in it. Since I do not see any such ground, I dwell secure, fearless, and self-confident. These are the three things about which the Tathagata is irreproachable. These bhikkhus are the four things that the Tathagata does not have to hide and the three things about which he is irreproachable. Okay, and I'll uh, continue with chapter two of this uh, book, Owada, by Lungpuropat, uh, Teachings of Lungpuropat. And we had ended with if we become confused with these stages, we won't succeed in what we do. Whatever stage we are at, we put effort into it earnestly. In Myanmar, monks who teach the Pali grammar will always teach the Pali grammar. Monks who teach the commentaries will always teach the commentaries until their death. So too do the teachers of Vinaya, the monastic discipline. They only teach one subject. Even when they are resting, students can go and ask them any questions. They really are experts in their subjects. Why? Because they put their greatest effort into one specific thing. They don't try to do many things at the same time. If you try to do many things together, then you, you develop the wrong dasana, wrong seeing. Behaving like this, many things never get completed and you will never become good at anything. In the end, nothing gets finished or is well understood. Knowing the causes and conditions and the steps involved in getting things done, know the causes and conditions and the steps involved in getting things done. 
or else you won't develop the right dasana, or seeing rightly, seeing clearly. Then you can't do things well and won't make any progress. A house must have a good foundation and structure. So must we. Now, while you're still young, you must study a lot. Be true to yourself, attentive and diligent. Then one day you can pass your knowledge on to others, both within the Buddhist religion and outside. Some people have been appointed by many companies to be on their advisory boards, earning a lot of money because they have excellent vision. They have well-structured procedures and extensive experience. Without broad experience, who will want to consult with you? That's why dasana, or seeing clearly, is important. Our thoughts are very important. Will those thoughts lead to wisdom? Will those thoughts lead to wealth? Are they wholesome or not? If our thoughts do not lead to wisdom, wealth, or wholesomeness, then they are considered wrong dasana, not seeing things clearly. We should comprehend this important point. What we think can lead to wisdom, wealth, and wholesomeness, or at least we must think virtuously. We have to be mindful of our thoughts. If whatever we're thinking doesn't lead to any benefit, then why should we continue to think about it? It will only harm ourselves, making us feel unsuccessful and depressed. Our thoughts can lead to success if we know how to think. This is crucial. We don't know how to think properly because we don't know how to think systematically, manage our time, or understand our objectives. Without understanding these, it's impossible to analyze and get things done. Let's say we want to do something, then we think about it thoroughly, checking whether it's right or wrong, appropriate or not, and then put effort into it. If it's wrong, we don't do it. If it's not appropriate, don't even give thought to it. We must develop rational thinking to help guide appropriate action. An impure mind must be purified. A restless mind must be calmed. A dirty mind must be cleaned. If your mind has been well trained, you will be at ease. The training of the mind must be done by yourself. Nobody can help you. You may think that you've already attained advanced knowledge, but in fact you have not. You may think that you've acquired an adequate amount of knowledge, but in fact you have not. Even I myself have not yet acquired an adequate amount of knowledge. I must continue to learn and practice more. Why do I continue to improve myself and develop my mind? When I know how to improve myself, I can use it not only for my own welfare, but I can also teach my students, benefiting them too. We need to constantly reflect and examine what is right and what is wrong regarding all the things that we have been doing and practicing. Is there anything we did today that is wrong? Is there anything we did this afternoon that is wrong? Is there anything we did tonight that is wrong? Constantly investigate, contemplate, and remind ourselves not to commit those wrongdoings again. Once we realize those wrongdoings and identify them, then we can immediately correct them through the perspective of the Dhamma. If we can practice like this, we will definitely make progress. Without such reflection, there can be no improvement, no correction, and no contemplation. Always be mindful not to commit any wrong actions by body, speech, or mind. Always look into your mind. You may lie to other people, but you can't lie to yourself. Keep this in mind. It's easy to lie to others, but it's impossible to lie to yourself, regardless of who you are. Neither an average person nor arhants like Venerable Anuruddha, Venerable Mahakasapa, Venerable Ananda, or Venerable Sivali can lie to themselves. Nobody can lie to oneself. 
If you honestly contemplate the matter, you should be able to own up to your mistakes. Once the truth of your mistake is accepted, things will be less complicated, which will make problems easier to solve. The reasons why we can't accept the truth is because greed, hatred, and delusion are clouding the mind. Once greed, hatred, and delusion wither, we will be able to accept the truth, and concentration also arises. When we earnestly investigate our mind and contemplate carefully, even the little things in our mind will appear with clarity. Then we are able to make distinctions between what is wholesome and unwholesome, good or bad, worthy or unworthy. All teachers and I are encouraging you to develop right view, right intention, and right effort. But if you don't listen and take our advice, it is you who will fail. You have to practice for your own future. You have to practice well. The Buddha endured great hardships before he was able to purify his mind. We should reflect on how much the Buddha had endured and how noble his conduct was. The most important faculty is consciousness. Right or wrong view depends on our eye consciousness faculty, not on our physical body. Let us consider a dead body. It has eyes and other organs like us, but it lacks discernment because the eye consciousness is no more. We need to learn to discern and contemplate the way things are, otherwise the eye consciousness is of no value at all. This is why it is important to understand chakudatu, rupadatu, chakuvinyanadatu, the eye property, the visible form property, the eye consciousness property. When a form appears before the eye and there's consciousness of, of the form, we say we like it or dislike it, but the form is just the way it is. Is it to be liked or disliked? Furthermore, we go assuming this business of liking and disliking is ours. Only when we understand eye consciousness will we attain right view, realizing that eye consciousness is impermanent, unsatisfactory, and not self. Defilements are always attached to our mind, obscuring our view and making it viparita, inverted, so that we see what is wrong is right. Only the mind has the ability to examine and discern. It is thus important that we understand this and continually train our mind. Sati, mindfulness, is crucial. Always be mindful. Mindfulness will help purify the mind. Mindfulness governs everything we do. With mindfulness, everything can be achieved. The important thing is that we develop mindfulness. The Buddha said that our mind can go anywhere in the world. Satellites may connect one country to another, but the mind can go everywhere. The mind is quick. As soon as we think, we're immediately there. Mindfulness is thus like a rope that can restrain the mind. When we abide in pure awareness, we are able to see the intentions behind our actions and act appropriately. Knowing it's wrong, don't do it. Knowing it's right, do it. However, when it's right and you don't act on it, this means that mindfulness will not come in or be cultivated, and our mind will continue to be sickened by not knowing what is right or wrong. The Buddha said, Papasming ramati mano kusalasming naramati mano, which means the mind finds pleasure in evil thoughts, while skillful thoughts are difficult to cultivate. This is the nature of human beings. We must therefore always be conscious and recollect the saying kusalasming ramati mano. Our mind should dwell in skillful thoughts and find pleasures in skillful thoughts. This is very important. Now it's up to you. There's a good example of the mind finding pleasure in skillful thoughts. 
There was a supreme patriarch of Myanmar who became blind at the age of 75 and lived until 110 years old. Although he was blind, he would have someone record his teachings in writing as he spoke. Then he would arrange for someone to give a Dhamma talk based on these notes. At times, he would give a Dhamma talk himself. The reason he would still do that, despite his old age and blindness, was because of the sympathy he had for his students and the great respect he had for the Buddhasasana. He continued to teach until his death because of the great devotion he had for the Lord Buddha. It is very important that we must respect our own roles and responsibilities. It is a pity if one does not have respect for one's own duties. This is very important. The Buddha gave discourses and exhortations three times a day, in the morning, in the afternoon, and in the evening. This is called panyati, here referred to as monastic disciplines. Not only must we have respect for the Buddha and his teachings, but we must also have respect for our own roles and responsibilities. We must keep in mind the importance of these. We must acknowledge bunkun, which is, uh, bunkun is like the uh, obligations of gratitude and appreciation uh, for things having been done to you in the past, good, good actions having been done to you. We must acknowledge Bunkun for the Buddha and his teachings. Our role is a simple matter. I just hope that all of you will be good and noble. That's my intention. You need to develop mindfulness. You need to cultivate samadhi. You'll definitely become a good person with, uh, with those qualities. When it comes to life versus precepts, we must choose to keep precepts to the best of our ability. Don't hold on to life. If we disregard the precepts in order to hold on to life, living that way may go either way, wholesomely or unwholesomely. Keeping precepts can only be wholesome and create the conditions for both physical and mental pleasures in this life and the next life, unless you become an arhant. But our life is uncertain. Sometimes our intention in carrying out wholesome acts is pure, but sometimes it's not. Therefore, when we must choose between life and virtue, virtue must take priority. Protecting our virtue is of the utmost importance. The Lord Buddha says, For those whose morality is well developed and well cared for, concentration and wisdom will naturally arise as a result. Besides bringing happiness to those who practice purely, morality provides supporting conditions for concentration and wisdom to arise. If our morality is not pure, there is no strong foundation for concentration or wisdom either. We have to always remember in our heart to keep our precepts pure. For example, don't kill living beings and don't steal other people's belongings. Not only would these unskillful acts destroy our own reputation, but they would also destroy the reputation of our families, parents, teachers, and essentially all those around us. Nothing good results from them. You need to think carefully. Don't just follow your own opinion about things. You must also have respect for all the teachers. I give my foremost effort into providing support in every possible way to you. But you have to know for yourself what's good or bad, what should be done or should not be done. Being in the Buddhist religion, you have to do what is right and what is best. You all know what is best. The Buddha once said, Ananda, there are only as many people as the soil in your hand who will go to heaven or attain Nibbana. But there are as many people as the whole earth who will go to hell. Therefore, we must take this into our hearts and only accumulate those things that are good and noble. 
We hear about killing, stealing, drinking, gambling, and all sorts of wrongdoings in the news every day. These people are fools. They don't know what is worthy or unworthy. They don't listen or lend ear to their elders. So that's, uh, that's the end of that chapter on the Dhamma. And, uh, yeah, just to make a few comments also. Uh, earlier today, some, somebody shared a scientific article with me, which is quite interesting. as a scientific article about some a group of scientists recently studying, trying to study the uh, idea of nirodha samapati, or the cessation of perception and feeling, which according to the suttas is only accessible to anagamis and arhants as a meditative attainment. And uh, the, the paper is really about, it's about nirodha samapati, but it talks in a scientific way about the jhanas and whatnot, and they've had various meditators where they've hooked them up to brain monitors and tried to measure their various brain waves. And uh, they had a they had one meditator who they didn't name, but uh, he apparently claimed to have this attainment. And so they were making various comments on what his brain waves were doing and whatnot. But uh, one part of the paper that struck me was uh, they have a whole synopsis about like a, they're kind of trying to give an introduction about meditation, meditation according to the Pali Canon, but also according to the Vipassana traditions that are known in the West now. And uh, they said there are many cases of people uh, experiencing states of either dissociation or uh, states of like losing their mind through meditation and we do not yet know why this happens and for me it was obvious like there was no mention of sila no mention of virtue anywhere in the paper it was all very uh very scientific and amazingly impressive vocabulary and language and a lot of words i just couldn't even understand at all because they were so advanced and um but there was no mention of sila no mention of virtue and for me it hit me that well, it's so obvious, of course, that those types of things happen when the sila isn't pure, when, when there's not virtue. So you having to have virtue uh, as a foundation for meditation is, is so important. It's not just about getting the, uh, getting the brain waves just right. <laughs> there has to be that, that buildup of, uh, of virtue. So we have a, a few minutes for discussion. Anybody has any questions or comments? Uh, I recently listened to Ajahn Amaro say that he uh, sleeps in the lion's posture. Do you know many monks that do sleep in the lion's posture or talk about that a little bit? Yeah, yeah, I think, uh, yeah, the lion's posture. I, I mean, uh, for myself, I can't say I have a perfect lion's posture, but I do usually sleep on my right side. But uh, it's not like the perfect lion's posture. I think some monks... I've tried to sleep in this kind of posture, but my arm falls asleep. So I usually kind of put my hand down, hand on my head and like that on the sangati is the pillow. But uh, some people are able to, I think some people have the body type that they're actually able to have their elbow on the ground. And But for me, I've tried that and like my arm just falls asleep within a matter of minutes. Yeah, there's something about the right sleeping on the right side. I don't know, I don't know what it is.
there's a teaching on postures that the sleeping on the the Buddha has a there's a sutta where I think it's in the book of the fours or the fives of the Nikaya. Another hidden gem in the Nikaya is that this is because I'll teach you about postures. He says laying down, laying down on your back is the posture of the corpse. It's the corpse posture. He says laying down on your left side is the posture of the sensualist. Laying down on your stomach is the delusion posture. Uh, and laying on your right side is the lion's posture. And the four jhanas are the Tathagata's posture. I quite like that sutta. Yeah, Brian. Um, in, the, uh, in the first reading, when Buddha was mentioning all the uh, different um, lives, uh, rebirths he was born in, and uh, all these roles, has, has, is there any mention ever of the Buddha mentioning like being in the like what his life was when he was in the presence of a previous buddha that's in the suttas as well yeah when he was uh, when he got his prediction of buddhahood from a previous buddha named dipankara buddha uh, the buddha was a a man named jyotipala i believe is that right jyotipala and uh he doesn't want to go see the buddha so his friend is like, hey, we have to go give alms food to the Buddha. Like, no, I'm not into it. And he was just kind of, uh, and he had long hair apparently, and his friend grabs him by the hair and drags him, and he thinks, wow, it is wonderful, it is marvelous. My friend's never treated me like this before. This must truly be important. But then as soon as he sees Deepankara Buddha, he's full of faith, and Deepankara Buddha, I think, I think I might be getting two stories conflated here, but he's about to step in a muddy puddle so Jyotipala throws himself into the puddle so that the Buddhas can step on him instead. And, uh, and then he stops and says, uh, good man, Buddhas do not tread on living beings. And, uh, and then he kind of gets up, covered in mud. Can't remember what happens after that, but gets a prediction of Buddhahood at some point. Not a, not a big, uh, big addition here, but just... Uh, uh, all Buddhas and all chief disciples also, um, uh, the, the, uh, the pattern is, is that uh, to become a, a Buddha or a, or a chief disciple of the Buddha like Sariputta and Moggallana, there needs to be an act of determination made in the presence of uh, a, a Buddha, like a, a, a Buddha prior to, the, uh, to um, Siddhartha Gautama. And then, uh, and then that, that Buddha will look into the you know the potential of that and say yeah you will be or not you know that kind of a nope no <laughs> sorry no. <laughs> do not pass go do not collect mm, not sure <laughs> so just another little historical snippet that popped up into my mind right at the beginning when you were reading the the first sutta of um the Mogalana, the Mogalana, the, yeah, the notest thou Mogalana. <laughs> well, the, the original, the original right. translations of that, yeah. Right, the uh, original I.B. Horner PTS edition was notest thou Mogalana. Notest thou Mogalana. But um, uh, also that just, you know, most people are probably familiar, but Mogalana ordained and then realized full <coughs> uh, 
uh, arahantship within two weeks. So all of that sutta and all of the comments and all of his, you know, uh, workings, uh, all that was, you know, must have happened during that first two weeks. Okay, I think we can end it there. And uh, there's no puja tonight, but of course, uh, all of you are more than welcome to meditate and highly recommended. You can still make use of the hall if you like. Correction on that. Uh, it couldn't have been Ivy Horner because she didn't translate the Angutra. Rice, <laughs> Rice Davies. <laughs>